Appreciate that. Hey, friends, if we can, let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 29. Exodus 29. Uh, my name is Kenson. I have the honor of serving as a pastor here at Park. Uh, if you guys uh, have not seen me around for the last uh, six to seven weeks, it's because I've been on sabbatical. So I am back now. Uh, glad to be back. Uh, a lot of great time just going to conferences, uh, to a solitude retreat, and spending family time. Almost too much family time. So if you know what I mean, right? So good to be back with you guys. Once again, Exodus chapter 29, page 69 in the church Bibles. Now, as you guys are flipping there, uh, we're back in our sermon series in Exodus, which is an incredible narrative of how God delivers his people from oppression and enslavement. And where we land in our chapters in the book here is that God now moves from freeing his people to now teaching them what it looks like to live as the freed people of God. So God instructs them through the Ten Commandments, through the law. He gives instructions on the tabernacle. And last week, your pastor, Rafe, did a fantastic job going through the tabernacle and showing us how God uses the tangibles as teachables to teach us who God is and how ultimately everything about the tabernacle points back to Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to be on the same idea here, but now instead of focusing on the tabernacle where God dwells, we're going to focus on the people responsible to work and to care in the tabernacle, the priest. So with that, let's go ahead and look at Exodus chapter 29. Let's read a few verses and then we'll jump right in, okay? Exodus chapter 29, starting at verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod and the breastpiece, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, with today's advancement in technology, with super high-speed processors, with medical equipment, you know, with your cell phone and how that circuit board is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, the precision needed to manufacture these items is so important. Did you realize that if even a speck of dust was to land on one of these circuit boards, it could potentially destroy it? So manufacturing companies build out these clean rooms, that these are rooms that are 10,000 times cleaner than a hospital operating room, that in these rooms here, you have these air filtration system that completely changes out the air 10 times per minute, that it's in these rooms that the light spectrum is controlled because different lights give off different particles. It was paramount to keep the clean room clean. But here's the problem. The biggest threat to the clean room were the people who worked in it. Did you guys realize that just you right now sitting here and doing nothing, you are releasing close to 100,000 particles in the air per minute? That's what you're doing right now. Did you realize that if you were just to stand up, you are, you are going, to, going to release 2.5 million particles per minute, okay? 
We are dirty and nasty people. That's just who we are. And because of that, clean rooms have very strict procedures. Only a few people can enter into a clean room. That, that you have to wear coveralls or bunny suits to cover your body. In addition to this, you need to wash your hands, remove your makeup. You need to rinse your mouth with water to remove any potentially harmful particles. And on and on it can go. It is a very laborious process and it has to be repeated every single time you go in and out of a clean room. Keeping this room clean is of utmost importance. You know, today's passage is going to feel like you're entering in to a clean room. That as we'll see here, the process for the priest to enter in and to work in the tabernacle required the utmost diligence because as Rafe shared last week, the tabernacle is a tangible representation of God's character. So it makes sense that if you are to enter into God's presence here, the standard to enter that is infinitely greater than entering into any clean room. And what we see in our chapters, chapters 28 and chapter 29, that God shows us just how high this standard is. That first, God ordains a specific people to serve as priests. That he calls out the tribe of Levi from the house of Aaron to serve him. Chapter 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. So only a select people could be in God's presence. And then continuing on in chapter 28, God now gives direction on what the priests are to wear. And then in chapter 9, God tells them that the priests need to prepare themselves in this way, the altar needs to be prepared in this way if you want to be suitable to serve. That throughout these chapters, God sets a very high standard to come before his presence and to fail to honor this was a matter of life and death. You know, for example, hemmed to the garment of the priest was a golden bell. Chapter 28, verse 35. And it, the golden bell, shall be on Aaron when he ministers. And it shall sound, the sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. So when the priest is working the holy of holies, the bell would ring for everyone to hear so people would know that he's working and he's alive, he's doing well. But if the bell was to stop, they would know that God has struck him dead. We see this tragedy with Aaron's son in Leviticus chapter 10. Let me show you Leviticus 10. It says this, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So Nadab and Abihu, they light the incense. And what we read in other verses is that they light the incense while being drunk on alcohol, and God consumed them with fire. We also see this with King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, that King Saul is about to go into war, and in his, in, in his unpatience, he offers unlawful sacrifice. And in that moment, God takes Saul's kingdom away from him. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David defeats the Philistines. He is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And as he's transporting the Ark, the oxen stumble. The Ark begins to tip, tip over. Uzzah reaches out to protect the Ark from hitting the ground. And once he touches the Ark, God strikes him dead. Because no one is to touch the Ark of the Covenant. It is a serious matter 
to go before the presence of God. Let me ask you, do you have a healthy reverence for God? Do you have a healthy reverence for God? You know, so often, myself included, you know, our relationship with God can be better described as, you know, casual, you know, informal, you know, organic, you know, whatever that might mean, right? And let me just say, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, God calls us his friend. He calls us to come to him as little children. There's a beautiful informality that we can have with God. But the danger of this is that we can be so casual towards him, we can neglect just how awe-inspiring our God is. I see this play out in my prayer life all the time, that I go ahead and I bow my head, and as soon as I bow my head and I start praying, I quickly get distracted. I start thinking about other things. I go on tangents. I'm rambling. I'm just saying the same lines over and over again in every single prayer that I say. You know, I pray and I sometimes just, you know, straight up just fall asleep on him, you know. And can I just say that I would never do this to any of you in this room, but yet I do this with God. It is so easy for me to take him for granted. And when those moments happen, it just shows just how little reverence I have for God and exposes just how small my understanding of who God is. Because when you look at Scripture, you're never ever going to read someone in Scripture encountering the greatness and glory of God and they say, oh, that, that, that's, that's nice, that's cute, can, can I pet it? You know, you're not going to see that. Instead, when anyone comes before the glory of God, it is, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. It is falling to your knees and covering your face. I'm not worthy. It's crying out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. It is a serious matter to come before the presence of God. You know, with the time that we have here, I want to share with you three demands that God gives to be in his presence from our verses. Let me show you the three demands he gives. First is this, God demands holiness. Second, God demands mediation. And third, God demands a better priest. So first, God demands holiness. So the word holy is all over our chapters right now, that in these two chapters alone, the word holy comes up 26 times. It means to be set apart, and when it's used for God, it's meant to say that God is special from all creation, unique from all creation, that he is morally perfect from all creation. And because of this, the one who comes into the presence of God must be holy as well. So what we see in chapters 28 is that God instructs the priest on what they need to wear to honor God's holiness. Let me just show you what, this, what these garments would have looked like here. In Exodus chapter 28, verses 2 and 3, it says this. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. So, so God tells Moses here to make holy garments, and these garments are to be glorious and to be beautiful. Now, when you saw a priest back in those days, you would have said, like, Wow. That, that's amazing. Now, I want to be careful here because we need to remember that when it says glory and beauty here, that these garments are not meant to have you say, wow, look at how great the priests are. But the point again is that the garments are meant to point your eyes to God and for you to see him as glorious and beautiful. You know, for example, it's kind of like this. 
I don't dress up very much. You know, I'm a t-shirt, tank top, short sweats kind of guy, flip-flops. You know, if I can get away with it on a Sunday morning, I would totally do it, all right? But I don't. Now, in the morning when I wake up with my wife and we leave for work and she sees me in a suit and tie or she has seen that I've shaved for that day, she doesn't say, you're so handsome. I wish she would, but she doesn't say that. She says, who are you meeting with today? Right? That's that's what she says to me. My suit and tie is not so much about me, but about the one that I'm about to meet with. The garments of the priest point to God. It lets you know who he is. So for example, let me just show you here. So for example, it says in these verses that the garments are to be made by the most skillful people. So the priests right now, you know, they're, they're not going to like, you know, Goodwill or Salvation Army for their clothes, but they're going to like Vera Wang, you know, Armani, you know, straight up Gucci. I've never been there, but I assume it's the best of the best, right? So, you know, and, and that's what God deserves here, right? In verse 4, six items of clothing are described. A breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat, a turban, and a sash. And these garments were manufactured, they were produced by the very same materials that were constructed for the tabernacle. Gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, and fine linen. The priests were literally wearing the garments that represented the physical representation of the house of God. Also, in verse 36, the priests were to wear a turban, and on front of the turban, there was a plate of pure gold that said, holy to the Lord. So if it wasn't enough for the clothes to tell you that God is amazing, there was a billboard on the head of the priest saying that he's holy to the Lord. And just one more thing here. In these chapters, there is never a mention of footwear. And this points us back to when Moses met with God at the burning bush. And Moses was told to take off his sandal because he was on holy ground. The priests were expected to serve with bare feet. And on and on this can go here. And the point that God is making is very clear. Holiness is demanded to enter into the presence of God. Psalm 24 says this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, what does this mean for us here? It means this. To be close to God is to love his holiness. To be close to God is to love his holiness. Now, when we think of holiness, we don't normally think of something to love. That when we think of God's holiness, we think that it's something to fear, that it's something to watch out for, that it's something dangerous, that that, that, that it's something that I I don't want any part of. But look again at verse 2. The holy garments are for glory and beauty. God's holiness is beautiful. Because it's in God's holiness, we have the highest of all beauties. That we have the beauty of moral perfection. We have the beauty of absolute purity. We have the beauty of harmony, of righteousness, of wholeness and completion, of mercy and kindness. And with anything that is beautiful, it naturally draws you right in. Like that beautiful piece of art, that beautiful musical composition, that breathtaking scene of mountains and waterfalls, seeing your bride walk down the aisle for the very first time, 
beauty draws you in. God's holiness is meant to draw you in. It's meant to be delightful. It's meant to be all satisfying that for all eternity, we're going to be in the presence of a holy God. It's a good thing. But here's the question. Why then don't we love God's holiness as we should? Why don't we love it as we should? It's because we find joy in unholy things. That instead of being totally set apart for God, we set our hearts apart for lesser things. And it's in these misplaced desires is the root of all intimacy problems with God. You know, you know, for example, when it comes to marriages, emotional and physical intimacy problems don't happen once a spouse decides to commit adultery. That the problems begin to happen when the spouse's spouse chooses in their heart to give their hearts to someone else. It's in the flirting, it's in the secret text, it's in the daydreaming and so forth. It's in that unholy desire that it begins to bring distance in the relationship. And in the same way, sin brings separation. It pushes God away. Let me show you a passage from Isaiah and Psalm here. Isaiah 59 says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Some of us here today feel very distant from God. And the reason for it is not because God is not there. It's not because he's cold or that he's uncaring. No, 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 no. The reason that's happening is that could it be potentially that there's an infidelity in your heart. That God's holiness stops being dreadful now, stops becoming beautiful, and now it becomes dreadful. It becomes something to run away from. It becomes something to avoid. If you want to be close to God, we have to love His holiness because holiness is who our God is. To love His holiness is to be drawn in by His beauty. Holiness and intimacy with God, these are not two separate issues. These are not two separate sermons. They are one and the same thing. One cannot happen without the other. Here's the second point I want to make. To be in the presence of God demands mediation. Demands mediation. You know, when God prescribes the garments for the priest, he tells them to wear precious stones. And let me just show you the garments again here. So first what we see in Exodus chapter 28, verses 9 and 12, is that God tells Moses to make these shoulder pieces. That he says in verse 9, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel and six of their names on, the, on, on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone. And verse 12, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. And then in Exodus 28, verses 17 to 21, God prescribes the breast piece. And on the breast piece, you have four rows of, of precious stones, and three stones are in each row. Verse 21, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel, that they shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. So follow me here. So God says here, on the shoulder pieces and the breast piece, for the priests, they're to have, first off, two stones. One stone with six names of the tribes, 
another stone having the other six names. And then you have the breast piece that has 12 precious stones on it, and each stone is to be given the name of one of the tribes of Israel. What we see here happening is that this all signifies the work of the priest, that he is to represent man before God. He is to be a mediator. In chapter 28, verse 38, it says that Aaron, the high priest, will bear the guilt of the nation before God. In the role of the priest, the, role, the priest was to make people right with God. And the way that the priest would do this was by taking an innocent animal and killing it, symbolic, symbolically saying that what is happening to this animal right now is what needs to happen for my sin. The role of the mediator, the role of the priest, was to bring restoration between God and man through a sacrifice. Now, real quickly, why did God demand a sacrifice? It's because God had to do something about our sin. That the only response holiness can have towards sin is to utterly destroy it. So when God sets up the priestly and sacrificial system, he does so so that he doesn't have to destroy us, but instead destroys an innocent animal. And what we need to see here is that when God ordains the priesthood, it is an act of grace. God is saying that I have provided another way than condemnation, that it's through the priest my holiness will be honored because a sacrifice will be given for sins, but it's also through the priest my love is shown because for forgiveness is now extended to you. This is the priestly mediation we need in God's presence. Now, what does this mean for us? It means that we need to be humble before our God. When God ordains the priesthood, he is telling us that we all need help that we cannot access, we cannot cross the gap between us and God because of our sin. But here's the thing. Many of us, all of us, to some degree, don't really believe this. We don't really believe that we're all that spiritually helpless. That many of us believe that, you know what, that I'm not perfect, but I feel like I'm pretty good. And I feel like that merits something. I feel like that deserves something from God. Right? And we see this all throughout the New Testament, that over and over again, the constant issue with the gospel is self-righteousness. It's works legalism. It's constantly going back and saying that, you know what, you know, the cross is nice, but, but I'm pretty good too. No, this is a false and dangerous thinking. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like jumping across the Grand Canyon. Imagine that I'm jumping against an Olympic jumper that's going to go to Tokyo, right? So I'm going to go ahead and I'll jump across the canyon and it's going to be pathetic and I'm going to fall down right away. I might go down like two yards, okay? That's it. And, and, I'm, and I'm done. Now, when this Olympic jumper begins to jump, it is beautiful. His form is fantastic. His hair is, his hair is in the wind. You know what I mean? He might go an extra like five, ten yards. Who knows? It's, it's amazing. But here's the problem he still falls into the pit of the canyon. It doesn't change anything. That as good as he is, no one can jump across the Grand Canyon. The same is true with God's holy standard, that some of us might believe that we're morally better than others, and that could be true. And some of you might believe that I sin less than others, and that could be true. But at the end of the day, we cannot cross the gap. The distance is infinite. Romans says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all 
need help before God. Let me ask you, is there humility in your walk with God? Do you recognize your need for help to walk with God and to follow Him faithfully? You know, you know for example, are you engaged in the local church? Are you leaning into a small group? Or do you believe that, you know what, I, I don't really need accountability. I can pursue God on my own, and I'm fine on my own. Or do you see yourself hiding your sin or keeping yourself from being, being vulnerable? If you truly understand the holiness of God rightly, you will always be looking for help because as your understanding of God's holiness grows, your reverence for it will grow. And in the same motion, the sickness for sin will only grow in your life. That these two things are not compatible things in your life. To be in the presence of a holy God demands humility. You know, many years ago, I was teaching a junior high Sunday school class in my old church. And one of the students asked me, hey, they said to me, you know, hey, Kenson, you know, you know, they know that I'm a Christian at school, and a lot of them are making fun of me. You know, they're saying that, ha, you're a Christian, you're so weak, you know, religion's a crutch, you know, you know, like, I don't need God, you know, but you need God, you know, and they, and they just made fun of them. And the student's like, Kenson, you know, how do I respond to that? And I'm boiling up here and I'm saying, all right, you know, let's talk about this. So I bring the class together and I say, all right, let me tell you what to say to this person. Tell this person, you try to be a Christian for a day. I bet you can't do it. It's hard to follow God. You need self-discipline. Do you know what? It's easy to live for yourself. It's easy to live with your own rules, but you try to live for God's rules. I bet you can't do it. I drop the mic, I walk out of the room and I think I've done it all, right? I feel like, man, this is awesome. It wasn't until years later that I realized that I made probably in my years of ministry the worst mistake I've ever made. I taught these 20 kids that they don't need a savior. I told them that they can do it on their own. I told them that as long as you believe in yourself, you can make it happen. I told them that they could jump the gap. What I should have said is that to follow Christ, it's not a crutch. To follow Christ is to be on bed rest because there is nothing we can say, there is nothing that we can do that is ever of, of, of any merit before God. That is just how great our God is and how small we are. To go before the presence of God, we all need help. We all need a mediator. And this leads me to our final point. To enter the presence of God, it demands a better priest. You know, when you look at through the book of Exodus and especially in the book of Leviticus, the priests were constantly sacrificing. You know, look at chapter 29 alone. Chapter 29, verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting and you shall kill it. Verse 15, then you shall take one of the rams, verse 16, and kill the ram. Verse 19, you shall take the other ram, verse 20, and kill the ram. Verse 36, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Verse 38, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and one lamb you shall offer at twilight. Continual sacrificing. Uh, let me give you three insights here. First is this. 
Notice that the priests needed to atone for their own sins. That before the priests could serve in the tabernacle, they first need to deal, had to deal with their own temptations and the sins that they committed, that they too were imperfect people. Secondly, there was blood and death everywhere. That in chapter 29, God gives us three different offerings. A sin offering, a burnt offering, and a wave offering. And even though these offerings served different purposes, at the center of all of them was blood and death. And the blood of this animal was thrown everywhere. It was put on the clothes. It was put on the altar. It was put on the ears of the priest, the thumbs, the big toes, that you could not come before God unless you were covered by blood. And finally, the sacrifices were never ending. It was one after another, after another, after another, and it was to go on indefinitely. What this is all telling us is that the priestly and sacrificial system, it was just a bandage. The priest could not offer a final solution to sin, so you continue on this cycle of sacrifices, 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 sacrifices. Now let's ask the question here. Why would God give us a priestly and sacrificial system that was lacking? Why would God do that? It's so that we would long for a better priest. It's so that we would long for Jesus Christ. You know, in the book of Hebrews, it looks at many of the Old Testament people, types, and themes, and it connects it back to Jesus, and the high priest is one of them. And let me show you what the book of Hebrews has to say about Jesus here. Hebrews chapter 9. It says about Jesus. And when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and through the greater and more perfect tent he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When Jesus came, he came as our high priest, not just as another high priest, but the greater and better priest. That Jesus doesn't come just to fit into the old system of priestly sacrifices. He comes in to fulfill them and put an end to them. Notice those three words, once for all, once for all for all. Those words mean that something has just happened and it was decisive. That something does not need to be repeated again. What this means is that Jesus Christ, that he is the final priest who has come. He is the ultimate sacrifice that has been given. Uh, consider this. Jesus, just like the high priest, is clothed in glory and beauty but unlike the high priest, he doesn't wear the garments of the tabernacle to show it because Jesus is God in the flesh. Just like how Jesus is the high priest, he carries the burdens of sinners on his shoulders, but Jesus does not carry it just for Israel. He carries it for the entire world. Jesus, just like the high priest, enters into God's presence, but unlike the priest, he doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself because Jesus is holy as God is holy. That Jesus, just like the high priest, makes a sacrifice to atone for the sins of people. But unlike the high priest, he doesn't do so by the blood of rams and bulls. He sacrifices his own blood. That it's in Jesus Christ we have our perfect mediator. He bridged the gap that we couldn't cross. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we deserved. Why? It's so that we could draw close to God. It's so that we could be in the presence of God. 1 Peter 2.9 says this. Let me show it to you. 
but you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In Christ, we are now the priesthood of believers. That it's no longer from the tribe of Levi, from the house of Aaron, but we are now the priests. We can now access God. We can now walk through the currents. It means that we can approach the throne with confidence and without any fear of God's holiness because Jesus has paid it all. That we can bring our lives before God. We can bring our struggles in our marriages, our frustrations at work, our family problems, our sorrow, our anger, anger, our sin into the presence of his holiness. And we can do this because Jesus has taken away the separation. We no longer need to be washed over and over and over again to secure our salvation because we're not washed by water. We're not washed by the blood of animals. We were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Christ, our unholiness is no more. Our past, present, and future sins are washed by Christ. Before God, we are covered now in the glory and beauty of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better priest. He is the ultimate sacrifice. And because of Him, we have unhindered access to God's holy presence. Did you guys realize that if Moses and Aaron were sitting here right now, they would say, what are you talking about? Are you for real? Do you know how jealous they would uh, be of us right now? That they would say to us, you have Jesus. You have Jesus. Church, do you know? You have Jesus. The ultimate priest. The ultimate sacrifice. Once for all. They would be so jealous of us. So what's an application for us? Let me just give you one application. Practice daily confession of sins. Practice daily confession of sins. You know, if you notice in our verses here, just how regular the sacrifices were that God prescribed. Then in chapter 29, in verses 30 to 39, you know, God says, now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. You shall offer one lamb in the morning, and you shall offer the other one at twilight. Chapter 29, verse 42, it shall be a regular burnt offering. That what God is doing here is that because of our sinful hearts, God makes regular provisions for our forgiveness. And what the principle is, is here for us, is that confession also needs to be a regular rhythm in being in God's presence. We need to confess. But can I just say that this is a struggle for many of us, if not all of us, because we don't confess all that much. That maybe I'll confess if I did something really wrong. Or I'll confess if I get caught in sin. Or I'll confess when someone comes up here and says, all right, now is the time for confession. But in terms of having it as a regular rhythm of our walk with God, we don't confess all that much. And can I just say, that is a very dangerous thing. Because that can lead to a hardened and prideful heart towards God. Because in that lack of confession, we are robbing ourselves of the joy of being in a loving fellowship with God. That if you can just imagine that sin builds up this brick wall towards God, confession is the way that we begin to take that wall down brick by brick. 
Now, if you're not sure about what to confess, let me just give you some questions to help you kind of stir your thinking and help you discern your heart. Let me just give you five questions here. First is this, is confession a regular part of my prayer life? You know, if not, why not? Why not? Secondly, am I defensive about any issue? Do I see myself blaming others quite a bit? Thirdly, is my confession specific or general? When I confess, is it just kind of broad, you know, abstract, whatever? Or is it specific? Because the more specific you are, the closer you are to the heart issue. Am I quick to apologize to others I've wronged? Or do I find myself having a very hard time saying sorry? What's going on there? And then finally, am I hiding any sin from God or others? Friends, can I just say, the depth of our relationship with God will be tied to the depth of our confession because it's in confession we are daily crying out our need for a Savior. So let me just paint it to you in this way. If you are not regularly, daily confessing multiple times during the day, you're, doing, you're, you're saying and doing one of two things. Either you're saying, I'm holy like Jesus, so I don't sin very much, so I don't need to confess very much. Or you're saying on the other side, I, I, I just don't really care about sin. I don't really care about what it does to my heart. We need to confess because it's in confession we say we need a Savior. It's in confession it releases us from the guilt of sin. It's in confession we we are released from the power of secret sin. It's in confession we experience the forgiveness of God. It's in confession we protect our hearts from pride. It's in confession our friendship with God is renewed. There is so much beauty, so much fruit in confession. And every time you don't confess, You are robbing yourself of that joy. Let me just show you what Richard Foster says in his book, The Celebration of Discipline Around Confession. He says this, When we come to the Lord to confess our sins, we may come in sadness, sorrow, and contrition, but we leave with great joy, joy that we are forgiven, that our relationship is restored, and that we can be in His presence unhindered by the burdens of our sins. Confession leads to celebration. Confession leads to celebration. Our sins are forgiven. Our lives are changed. Simply put, confession is good for the soul. Church, let's enjoy the presence of our holy God together because Jesus, our high priest, has done it once for all. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's bow our heads. You know, before I pray for us, I'd love to just give you a moment to confess. What do you need to bring before the foot of the cross, before the presence of God? And in a few moments, I'll pray for us. Jesus, we praise you as a greater and better priest. We praise you as being the ultimate and final sacrifice. 
the one who gave your body and blood for us so that we can be right before God, so that we can be holy before him. Jesus, thank you for the incredible access through your son. Help us to never, ever take you and your father for granted. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.